when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Jonathan Derbyshire, Executive Comment Editor, and in this episode we'll be discussing the emerging contours of Theresa May's brand of conservatism and what we've learnt this week about the likely length and complexity of the future negotiations over Brexit. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Sarah Gordon, the FT's Business Editor, Henry Mance, Political Correspondent, and Arthur Beasley, European Diplomatic Correspondent. And on the phone we have Gideon Rackman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator. Thank you all for joining me. One of Theresa May's first acts as Prime Minister was to announce that Britain needs a comprehensive industrial strategy. Over the past week, we've begun to get a clearer idea of just what this might entail, starting with Mrs May's decision to postpone approval of the Hinkley Point nuclear power plant. Henry, when the Prime Minister explained her plan to defer a decision on Hinkley to François Hollande, the French president, she's supposed to have said, it is my method. What have we learnt this week about Theresa May's methods? I think the first thing we know about her is she's cautious. And this is a huge project already at the cost it's estimated at is 18 billion so far. But it has the potential to spin out and become one of those huge um, albatrosses around the neck of a government and something the opposition can beat them with very hard for many years. And so we've, we've seen that she's someone who doesn't want to be bounced into the decision. They held a board meeting, they approved it on the idea that the government would want to get things going and show business confidence after Brexit. And she said, no, I'll take my time about that. I don't need to rush to judgment about things I'm not familiar with. She's not a minister who before would range across briefs, would go outside the Home Office terrain. And so she won't necessarily have thought very deeply about this. So we've learned something about the quality of her decision making. And she likes to keep the circle of advisers quite tight, doesn't she? Working with two uh, close advisers in particular, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Downing Street. Yes, they were special advisers of hers until quite recently at the Home Office and are now her Joint Chiefs of Staff. So that's a job that's normally been done by one person, either quite a dynamic individual like Jonathan Powell under Tony Blair or, or then a lesser known figure of Ed Llewellyn. And they have been with her a lot in time. They obviously trusted by her and we don't know what goes on in those conversations but it's clear that Fiona Hill does a lot more of her communications work and occasionally in her forays out into public life which haven't been huge or into public debate Fiona Hill is in charge of those and her Theresa May's thinking on a whole range of issues seems to reflect very much that of Nick Timothy. Sarah there's a decidedly different tone and style to this government compared to David Cameron's administration isn't there? Yes it's very interesting I think it's most clearly seen in the attitude towards the business community where the first thing to mention is the very fact that she has been explicit about adopting and, and pursuing an industrial strategy differentiates her from the former administration. They were extremely keen to disavow any such strategy and Sajid Javid, the previous business secretary, was known to be particularly against the whole idea. Business on the whole is very happy at the thought of an industrial strategy. I think they found it worrying that in the previous years that there was no explicit commitment on issues such as infrastructure, 
on industrial development of the devolved regions. Issues like that are of high priority, certainly for the business groups. So the fact that she has talked about an industrial strategy for a start is seen as a good thing. The second thing is she's set up three cabinet committees, one of which will be looking at Brexit, but one of which is tasked explicitly with the economy and industrial strategy. And that had its first meeting last week. And that has, I think, 11 secretaries of state on it. So it's a very high powered group of ministers. And secondly, representatives of the business community that she has so far consulted with have been more from the smaller business sectors than big business in the city. And of course, she's also been very explicit about about ending a culture of excessive pay and so her focus has been more small business than big business. We only have the broadest outlines of this industrial strategy at the moment but presumably there are aspects of it, you mentioned executive pay, which business is less enthusiastic. I mean how has business reacted for example to her proposal for worker representation on boards? I think at the moment there's caution on the part of Theresa May, there's also caution on the part of the business community. I think that their overall feeling this far is that there is quite an open door policy at number 10 to listening to concerns that have been raised. I'm in the meeting this week of a number of smaller business groups, which was with Theresa May and Greg Clark, the new business secretary, was very wide ranging in terms of what was talked about and what was asked for. And I think that at the moment, they're at a stage of saying, okay, these are our priorities, which are wanting, for example, an end to the delay to the big infrastructure projects like Heathrow. They want some sort of moves on the cumulative burden that was really put on business by the former Conservative government, pensions, auto-enrolment, the national living wage, the apprenticeship levy. These are all issues which have now been raised with Theresa May herself. And I think that business feels that's extremely positive that Mm. they've been allowed to make the case directly to the new Prime Minister. Henry, I think the Hinckley decision revealed misgivings on Mrs May's part about the role that Chinese investment has played in the project. And of course, wooing China was a central plank in the strategy of the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, George Osborne. Is this a sign that Mrs May and the new Chancellor, Philip Hammond, want to dismantle Mr Osborne's legacy on economic policy? The China scepticism is definitely there. And what's interesting is it doesn't just cover security concerns, but it also covers Chinese imports. So I think we may see more willingness to put up barriers in that sense. Dismantling the legacy, I mean, one of the interesting examples is the Northern Powerhouse, which we associate very much with George Osborne. He gave a speech in 2014 introducing it and saying, we're going to return the North to its former glories by investing in infrastructure and science and even arts and theatre and also regional mayors. And Theresa May hasn't talked about that, but has talked about broadening it to the entire country. So at the moment, you can read it one way as, well, she doesn't like the idea of the Northern Powerhouse. On the other hand, you can read it, well, she likes it so much that she wants it to happen across the country. It will take us some months, I think, to see whether her approach in practice is very different. It certainly looks to me with the Northern Powerhouse that she saw that as an Osborne thing and she didn't understand why one region should have special treatment. Uh, it looked like an electoral ploy by Osborne. That's not the kind of games that Theresa May wanted to play. Sarah, I mean, the, there are some misgivings in cities like Manchester, for example, which was the centrepiece, the jewel in the crown of the Northern Powerhouse. The problem with the Northern Powerhouse is that Frankly, it's often more of a media and political concept than a reality on the ground. I mean, it was much talked of, as Henry said, by George Osborne. But the actual policies and money and projects following on from that commitment were not overwhelming in their number and scale. So I'm not sure that this is actually going to have... It's not that Theresa May is talking about stopping particular projects or putting certain investment on hold. I think it's more of a political ploy, really, 
to reach out to those areas of the country which, of course, voted predominantly and overwhelmingly to leave the European Union. So I think we should see it in that context rather than a context of a shift of investment or infrastructure projects elsewhere. And Henry, that attention that Mrs May and her team are paying to those voters in Britain's deindustrialized and post-industrial hinterland is very characteristic of this new approach, isn't it? Yeah, we had some really interesting research in the FT this week showing that you could correlate a lot of the Leave voting to perhaps regions with industries affected by the rise of China, you know, say the steel industry being one obvious recent example. So the question I would have there is that there isn't an electoral motivation. Ultimately, Theresa May is a Conservative Party politician, and her voters are going to expect something from a government that they have put into power. And I think a lot of these regions are not Conservative supporting, will never be Conservative supporting. They're going to lean to UKIP or, at the moment, Labour. And even if she does succeed in in remedying the social ills, I think a lot of her core voters will say, well, what's in it for me? It's not just social ills. It really is an economic divide. I mean, what the big challenge that any government in the UK faces at the moment is productivity and the fact that even though we are growing at a reasonable rate, our productivity is not growing. And the answer to that question comes undoubtedly from outside London. Financial services, which as we know dominates the London economy, is highly productive. It is industries and business outside London that needs to be addressed. So I think it's an economic imperative as much as a social one. Do you think what we've seen so far of Mrs May's proposed industrial strategy suggests that she acknowledges that and understands the problem? I think the very fact of having a strategy is something that will be welcomed. Whether she sticks to the components of the strategy, for example, infrastructure is overwhelmingly seen as an important plank to that strategy. Infrastructure projects sadly get announced, years go by, they never get implemented, there are no diggers on the ground. And so getting diggers on the ground is the big challenge. And secondly, I think the nature, the pro-market nature of an industrial strategy, it will be incredibly interesting to see in which direction the government decides to lean. Because of course, a strategy of picking winners is a very dangerous one. You know, we have some good examples where it does work and where, you know, a company like Airbus, for example, is constructed from nothing and becomes a very successful global multinational, we have a lot more examples of how picking winners can actually distort the market and distort the rise of true national champions. Henry, you've been searching for clues this week to the likely shape of the May Premiership in the writings of Nick Timothy, her Joint Chief of Staff, who we mentioned earlier. And some of his views diverge in interesting ways from those of the Cameron government, particularly on domestic policy, where he was critical, for example, of what he termed a mistaken belief that you cannot be tough enough on welfare. Can we see Mr Timothy's influence in Mrs May's determination to focus on low-income working families? Yeah, the first thing to say is he writes really well. If only all politicians or all political aides wrote like this, then um, we wouldn't have to regurgitate some of their awful words uh, from speeches. So he's obviously a thoughtful guy, and uh, people who know him say he's very clever. Um, He doesn't come from a posh background, and his views seem to reflect that. He refers to John Major's election campaign, which said, what do the Tories do for a working-class boy from Brixton? They make him prime minister. He says, that's the question we've got to keep asking. What, what can we do for a working class person from Bradford or Bolton or Brixton? And that I don't think you would say has been the guiding principle of the Cameron government. You know, they'd be much more comfortable thinking 
about nice liberal ideas and a sort of cosmopolitan consensus. And he says, well, the voters are perfectly happy. Ordinary people are perfectly happy to have controls on immigration. They don't understand the point of concepts like general well-being. They don't understand the point of green taxes. So let's just get back to the issues that matter to them. Um, And the interesting thing, he wrote about welfare at the time, the tax credits saga. And he said, look, are you for or against the reductions in benefits that George Osborne was proposing? He said, basically, that's a false choice. We've been forced into this thinking that you know, we have to make this choice. In fact, you need to sort of reshape the whole policy debate. Um, And so it it signaled there that he understood quite in a clever way how you can move on the debate. Already in the first month of this government, we've gone from having an an austerity regime or austerity discourse as the sort of predominant one in British politics, just talking about investing in infrastructure and fiscal stimulus and these kind of things. So I think we may be seeing his big idea, which is that you can change the narrative. Sarah, everything Henry says suggests that the Cameroonian project of modernising or decontaminating the Conservative Party was only half finished. I mean, you only have to look at the um, referendum results to see that that, of course, is the case. It's not just the Conservatives, but of course, Labour, which is having to have a massive rethink in the wake of that referendum about who their natural constituents are, you know, how they increase their appeal to the vast swathe of voters who at the moment neither the Conservative nor Labour parties are speaking to. Do you think Theresa May and Nick Timothy are attempting in some way to steal some of Labour's clothes? I mean, there are some decided similarities between everything that Mrs May is saying about industrial strategy and reforming capitalism to some of the things that Ed Miliband was saying before the last general election. It would be, it would be fantastic if so, because then they they complete the task of the Cameron administration because of course even the previous administration uh, stole a lot of Labour's clothes. So I think that is, I mean it's a question at the moment of how you define and pursue the middle ground isn't it? And certainly Theresa May at a time when Labour is in complete and total disarray appears to be taking a more populist line certainly than her predecessor and attempting to inhabit that middle ground. I mean, if the Tories are stealing Labour's clothes, it's only because Labour's at a nudist camp at the moment in terms of... uh... (laughs) And are Labour people worried about this, the turn that Theresa May has taken on industrial policy and so on? Or are they so preoccupied with their own internal squabbles? I think if you're a moderate Labour MP, you've just got to hope that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't get re-elected leader and then you can start worrying about Theresa May. And now to Brexit or rather to the diplomatic preliminaries to the formal negotiations for Britain's exit from the EU that will begin once the British government triggers Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. There was an early flashpoint this week over what will happen to the pensions of British Eurocrats after Brexit. Gideon, you wrote about the pensions, Raoul, and this underlines just how complex negotiating Brexit is going to be, doesn't it? Yeah, because you'd think that this is a kind of minor administrative detail, and in many ways it is. The pensions of a few thousand British officials and who will eventually pay them. You know, compared to, say, negotiating the end of the common agricultural policy or indeed the big question of what kind of trading arrangement Britain is going to have with the EU, it is. It's a tiny issue. And yet... It could be very contentious, it could take months to sort out, and there are very uh, large amounts of money at stake. Apparently, the EU's total pension commitments to all its employees and ex-employees is 60 billion euros, which is double the amount that, say, Britain is going to spend on renewing its nuclear weapon system. And the Brits account for about 8% of former employees, probably a few fewer of current employees. So there's a lot of money at stake, and it's not as simple as dividing it up. You know, will the British continue to pay into the budget because these pensions are paid on a pay-as-you-go basis? Will they make a one-off lump sum payment? Do they actually bear some responsibility for the pensions of other EU officials who were on the books when Britain was a member? These are all 
liable to be quite contentious issues. And I think it's a problem because it will make uh, for very bad headlines, certainly in the UK, where you know you can just write the headlines in the sun or whatever about billion-dollar payouts to Eurocrats. But even in the rest of Europe, where, for example, the European Commission, uh, and most officials will work there, is responsible for imposing austerity on Greece, which includes cuts in pensions. So the revelation that uh, actually the commission itself is rather well off in that department may not be helpful. So Arthur, the optics of this row are not great, are they, for the EU? No, and this is, if you like, this is only the preliminary phase. And when you stand back from it, what the looming row on pensions shows is that here's an issue which is fundamentally settled. There's no controversy around it right now. But once you open that door, controversy will inevitably follow. And that's going to be the way with a whole pile of other issues as well. Arthur, one of the questions preoccupying officials in both Westminster and Brussels is when Theresa May invokes Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. Mrs May has said she intends to do so next year. Now, one EU official said this week that the other member states want the negotiations that will follow the triggering of Article 50 to be wrapped up before the June 2019 elections for the European Parliament. Is that timetable at all plausible? Well, on paper it could be, but all of this will have to be tested in the furnace of political real time, if you like. And I think at the moment that all the expectations suggest that Article 50 will indeed be triggered at some point early next year. But that presupposes that the British government will have settled on its negotiation position. But also on the other side, there's going to be 27 other member states who are going to have to settle themselves on a negotiation mandate. So even before you get to the starting line, at which point you have a pretty serious locking of horns, there's going to be a whole pile of politics going on. And Gideon, some EU officials, and I think you've spoken to a couple of them, are saying it's fanciful to think it could be done by 2019. This thing is going to drag on, they say, perhaps for as long as 10 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that they genuinely think that's the case. And I think that a lot of the Brexiteers in Britain thought that the entire relationship could be both wrapped up and renegotiated within two years, whereas what the EU officials say is, oh, no, 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 the two years... Uh, legally are just devoted to the terms of the divorce settlement. Things like the question of pensions and the question of uh, unscrambling the computer systems. Uh, It's really quite technical stuff. And only when the UK is out do we start negotiating the new trade deal. Now, the British will be very resistant to that notion because it gives them absolutely zero leverage. It means that they're cast out of the EU, they're back on WTO rules, they may face tariffs. And then in that weakened position... They have to negotiate a new trade deal, which, as again, the EU official said to me with some relish, would be massively complicated and will have to be ratified in 27 national parliaments of the EU, plus a whole host of regional parliaments, including, as he pointed out, the German Assembly of the Belgian government. So there was an element, I thought, of, if not threat, laying out for the British what a very, very arduous road they were setting down upon. But equally, I think he was, in some senses, simply describing how things look from Brussels. And there's another element here in which the British trading arrangement in the WTO is set in line with the rules according to the bloc at large. And that, too, is going to have to be untangled. And never mind the 27 other EU member states who are going to be involved. There's the whole question of well in excess of another 130 WTO members. And that, too, is going to get very, very knotty and very, very prickly. Gideon, Liam Fox has been travelling the world scoping out his phrase, trade deals when 
Britain leaves the EU. But if what Arthur has just said is right, then there's very little meaningful he can do until the future shape of EU-UK relations has been settled. Well, I think that is looking like it might be the case. I mean, on the one hand, to offer Mr Fox a little bit of hope, I think that there is a potential gap for the British in the sense that the EU itself is proving very, very bad at concluding trade deals. So they've got this EU-Canada deal lined up already to be ratified, but it may not indeed be ratified in Europe precisely because of these 28 nations that need to approve it. It looks like the TTIP, which is the US-EU deal, is going nowhere fast. So it's possible that countries like Canada, Australia, the US, at least in theory, may be willing and able to do a deal with Britain uh, because it's just one country and it's also one that's relatively affluent, so you don't have a lot of the kind of neuralgic stuff about free trade that you're opening your markets to a much poorer labour market. So that's on the plus side. On the negative side, however, if you talk to, say, to the American trade people, they say, yeah, well, that's all fine in principle. But since trade negotiations are deeply complex, very hard to do a trade deal with Britain until you know what its trading relationship with the EU is. Because, for example, a car will be assembled in nine different places, but parts will come from various bits of the EU, and until you know what the local content rules are, whether they face tariff barriers or not, you don't quite know what kind of a deal you're making with Britain. Arthur, EU leaders have made it clear that there will be no negotiations with Britain until Article 50 is invoked, but there will be diplomatic contacts short of formal negotiations before that. What form will these contacts take? What form are they taking? I think it's it's pretty clear. Look, at I mean, in any difficult situation such as this, we would say, look, there's no negotiation, but there's always contacts ongoing in the background. And I think you have bilateral engagements as between Britain and all of the other EU members ongoing all of the time. All of these countries have ambassadors in London. Britain has ambassadors in all of their capital cities. There are contacts and those contacts continue. You also have contacts at the political level as well. And one of the first things that Theresa May did upon her assumption of the keys of Downing Street was to uh, go and meet Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande and uh, Matteo Renzi. And even though those engagements would fall short of a formal negotiation, well, there's no doubt that they we're not discussing the weather. Yeah. And the main item on the agenda here is Brexit. And there is a certain process going on here where people are trying to get the shape of what's going to happen and trying to take a weight of the different issues as they arise. Gideon, how effective do you think Theresa May's early charm offensive in capitals across Europe has been? I mean, I think the most charming thing she's done is simply not being Boris Johnson or not being Michael Gove, who were the figureheads of the Leave campaign. And a lot of people in Europe were very angry with them. And so the fact that at least nominally um, Mrs May was a Remain person, albeit not a very active one, helps. I think the fact that she's quite a low-key person, she doesn't come across as the arrogant Brit, helps. But I think that there's a limit to how much she can do. You know, everybody's now waiting for her to actually say what it is she wants. And the reception for her has been partly also a reflection of the personalities of the people receiving her. So Angela Merkel, as one would expect, was uh, low-key, businesslike. Francois Hollande um, was friendly, but a little chilly. And I think it was possibly telling that a couple of days after Mrs May had been there and you'd had this reception at the Elysee that you suddenly have unilateral, quite tight restrictions on the borders in France, which you know could have been just to do with terrorism and fears of terrorism after the Nice atrocities 
but it also had a feeling of reminding the British that if you really do close down on free movement of people, you could be facing, as some British holidaymakers were facing, 18-hour queues to get into uh, the car ferries for France. One of Mrs May's first acts as Prime Minister was to hand responsibility for negotiating Britain's exit from the EU to leading Brexiteers, Boris Johnson, David Davis and Liam Fox. Those three Brexit ministers are going to be sharing the Foreign Secretary's country retreat at Chevening, and that's a handy metaphor for the uncertainty over who will have responsibility for what as Britain negotiates its exit from the EU. Who's the senior partner here, do you think? Well, I think in formal terms, Boris Johnson is. Uh, the Foreign Secretary is one of the great officers of state, and the other jobs are ones that have just been invented, essentially. That said, the fact that the two key parts, negotiating the exit from the EU and negotiating the new trading relationships that, according to the Brexiteers, will set us off as a new global power, have been handed to other people, suggests that if things go badly for Boris, he could just be packed off as the guy who wanders around Latin America and Asia and Africa, while a really crucial diplomatic task is handed off to uh, Davis and Fox. That said, I think that Fox is in the process of discovering that his job Although it sounds kind of glamorous and important, as we were discussing, there may not be much to do for many years because countries, although they may be willing to do a trade deal with Britain, will find it's very difficult until we've settled our relationship with the EU, which suggests to me that the key person could be David Davis, who is the guy who's actually in charge of negotiating Brexit. But I think he's a bright enough guy, but I think it would be a very, very difficult task for a sort of Kissinger or Talleyrand, and I fear that David Davis is going to be out of his depth pretty soon, and goodness knows whether Boris will be much help. He's never been known as a details man. Arthur, it's fair to say, I think, that both European leaders and EU officials have been shocked by Britain's lack of preparation. I think there's no doubt about that, and I think even when the dust settled, and yes, the case was always made in the midst of the campaign, that no, there is no alternative, there is no plan B, and no preliminary work is on underway. And I think it still remains the case that the perception outside is that there is no plan. And indeed, if you look at the developments on Thursday and you look at the plan from the Bank of England, it still appears that Mark Carney is the only person who does have a plan. Arthur, Sir Julian King was appointed as Britain's new European Commissioner this week. How do you think Brussels is handling the issue of allocating responsibilities to a country which is on course to exit the EU? Well, he's been given the security portfolio, which essentially is a new mandate. And the political significance there is that powers have not had to be taken from any other commissioner in the first instance and secondly there was no requirement for a reshuffle of portfolios within the College of Commissioners. The reality here is that this is not the most senior position in the Commission Julian King will be answering to Timmermans, the Dutch uh, Commissioner who is a Vice President of the Commission and a very very powerful individual in his own right But at the same time, when you stand back from it, it still is the case in a post-Brexit world, whenever Britain actually leaves the EU, there's going to have to be some kind of cooperation between Britain and the EU on these pretty heavy security matters. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all the guests for joining me. We'll be back next week for another instalment. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this, you might like to try our Hard Currency podcast presented by me, Roger Blitz, the FT's Currencies Correspondent. Each week, I discuss the main talking points in the markets with experts in the field. You can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts every Thursday. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.